This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. Make sure to register for the next National Disciple Making Forum at discipleship.org so that you can receive in person the kind of content that you'll hear on this podcast. Go to discipleship.org to reserve your seat now. Today we're featuring an episode by Emotionally Healthy Discipleship called Getting Beneath the Surface of Racism, Discipleship, and the Building of a Multiracial, Multi-Ethnic Church, featuring Pete Scazzaro. Here's today's featured episode. All right, welcome. Uh, nice to have you here. Thank you. Um, you know, I threw this topic in. I, you know, they, they said, do whatever you like. And uh, so uh, I thought it'd be tremendous to do a session on going beneath the surface, uh, get beneath the surface of racism. And it's been a topic dear and close to our lives and heart for decades. And uh, I don't know if anybody would come to this workshop, but I didn't care. I knew that some of you would come and sort of knowing its importance and centrality. So, um, and I've got two folks with me here, you know, Steve and Drew will help out. And Drew's been really involved in this issue as well. So let me just say, as you, as you all know, this issue of bridging racial, cultural, economic, gender barriers is gigantic. And uh, I, I see that emotionally healthy discipleship, which is our particular contribution to this discipleship discussion, is like an icebreaker ship coming into the discussion. Um, it's... Um, uh, it brings something very weighty, very large. Uh, it's by no means the whole picture of the issue of reconciliation, but you know, icebreakers break up the ice, which is three feet thick, three feet thick in the Arctic. But it opens up a pathway, you know. And, and I, I would say that American evangelicalism, um, and much. I mean, I think unless you do serious discipleship, is going to be, it's going to manifest. Sin's going to manifest in division of race and uh, class. And culture in anywhere in the world, it's a global phenomenon. But in particular, in our country here in the United States, um, you know, we as a church have done very poorly in uh, bridging barriers because our discipleship has been so shallow. And so, what we're talking about here is a discipleship paradigm called the motion of discipleship that was actually birthed out of the struggle of racial class. Uh, cultural tension uh, in our context in New York City, and uh, I, I think we've off, I think we're offering is is, an, is a thing to open up some pathways. There's a lot a lot has to follow, but it's a it's a very big answer to a very big problem. And uh, as one guy said to me, a nice white evangelical who's doing evangel who's doing rec- reconciliation, he says you're just it's just this is just too much. You're just going too, it's just too complicated. And that was it, you know. And so I said, what can I say, you know. Um, so I'm going to take you through a little bit of our own story of how this happened. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I would, when I became a Christian, I was, I was very fortunate. And I was, I was birthed into an environment where I was exposed very quickly. And, and being a Christian is a person also who bridges barriers. That this is part of the gospel, like Book of Acts, Book of Ephesians. Even I'm a white Italian-American, like this is like, no, if you're a Christian, like, you bridge barriers. Like, that's what Christianity is, just like in the Bible. You know, I'm like, okay. So I just accepted it. That's it. That's normal. Uh, so I was very fortunate in that I was birthed well in my intervarsity early years. So then naturally, when I, uh, 
you know, so I was a member of an African-American church for a while. I was an American or a Latino church in the inner city. I was always in these multiracial environments. And uh, so when it came time for me to, you know, graduate at seminary, there was never a question for me that I'm going to be involved. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to plan a church. We're going to be a church that does this because that's what the church is supposed to do. And so we moved to Queens, New York City. Actually, Jerry and I spent a year in Latin America learning Spanish first, and then we moved to Queens. Uh, not that we were called to Spanish people in particular. We just could see it was very, it would be very beneficial for the ministry long term. So anyway, so, so we planted this church, and uh, uh, with, in, in our mission statement, we were going to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. I was a scratch church plant, which means we didn't have any people. Uh, it was very interesting because I think we, we saw early on that very few people wanted to join us in this venture because it looked kind of suicidal. And, um, uh, but uh, so we, in the early years, we did grow in number and we were multiracial from the beginning. We had a lot of, because again, the nature, Queens, our, our neighborhood where our church is located has 123 nations in it. So, do you understand? So we, were, we, we purposely chose to live in a neighborhood that was, you know, multiracial and, and plant a church there. Uh, and we started in English, then we planted a Spanish service in the afternoon. So we had all those dynamics going on. But we had tremendous tensions in our church um, because we didn't know how to deal with it. We, we knew the sociological stuff. We knew the Bible verses about being a multiracial church. We knew all that, but we didn't have a discipleship model with any depth to it. And so we realized that we were on thin ice because we could see the tensions. Uh, and uh, actually, what, what I really got my attention, we had, we had a, when the split we had in Spanish, and some of you have read about that in our different books, uh, I, I was the lead pastor, and I was, I was going to hand it to a Colombian uh, fellow who was my associate who was light-skinned. But then I had a Dominican fellow who was like kind of the third guy, dark-skinned, Dominican. And when the church split happened, it was a complex church split, but I'll never forget when the Colombian guy left with 200 people, the dark-skinned Dominican, Julio, who's now the lead pastor of the church, handed me a book. And it goes, Pete, you really don't understand um, the history of Latin America and uh, race. And so he handed me this book called, I think it was called The Americas. And it was a history of every country of Latin America around race. For example, the split Dominican Republic and Haiti, you know, that whole thing, how that happened and the river that between, you know, who do I know, you know, and then slavery and how that, you know, whittled down in Colombia and different countries and how they see color of skin and social class. And man, was I clueless. And uh, here I was, I was so focused on the African-American issue here in our own, you know, country. And I'm just learning about different color skin and African-Americans and then West Indians and Africans and African-Americans and then African-Americans who made it out of the hood. Who's, I don't want all these hood kids in, in my, in the church. And I, all, I mean, I'm just dealing with so many levels of tension. And we used, we used to say we had, we had tension on every, but Arabs and Jews and, and, you know, the West Bank problems, my Palestinian woman would say to us, our neighbor would say, she was in our church, and if my kid ever marries a Jew, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll shoot him. I'll, you know, it's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, and the Jewish people want to, they want to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. And just all the tensions that just, where we say the tensions of the world are all here. And so I'm watching this, and, um, and, 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 and I could see that we have a big problem because... You know, when you have a, a youth pastor, uh, you know, it was, it was evident that we had, an Afri- we had an African-American woman who came out. She was, she was going to go to jail for 20 years for drug dealing or something. And she was our pastor at that time. And, you know, we'd see people when the kids would get to junior high, they, 
the white people or the Asians, they, they're going to the church, you know, and, and it was a challenge. It just was a lot of challenges. And we used to say, you know, who can your son or daughter not marry? That tells us a lot about the gospel. But we were like, we were just, we were just in it every day. And me being a white guy leading it and having the power, then you'd be accused like, oh yeah, you're into reconciliation. As long as you have the power, you're into it. You know, so you're kind of like, you know, wrestling with those kinds of issues. And, and, uh, but it was an everyday issue, like every day, like every day. Um, and I just knew God told me to do it. And I was open to give the power away whenever he said to. But what happened was in, in, when that Spanish split happened and I saw enough that we were just another evangelical church doing reconciliation. And most of them that I'd seen over the years, I've been watching for many years, had split. They just didn't work. They just didn't fly. And I, I really came into this saying, I really believe the power of the gospel. I, I believe it. I believe the blood of Jesus has brought down the dividing wall of hostility. And it's got to work out practically. And I just, I, that's, I gave my life to it. And I was in it. Uh, I just didn't know how it was going to work. And so it was this, in, in 94, that split happened in Spanish is what got me on this whole journey. And Jerry and called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Uh, in 96, that kind of got launched. And that was the turning point for us. Um, that changed everything. And I would say that, and I'll explain to you what are some of the key ingredients, but that was the turning point because we now had a language. We had a discipleship model that deeply changed people. Uh, as you'll see in just a few minutes, I think we are theologically got ourselves very clear, I think, on a lot of things. But really, to understand emotionally healthy discipleship, you really have to understand our context. I don't think it could have been birthed in a suburban white context, actually. It needed to be birthed in an international context around the crucible of racial reconciliation in this country. I think that, that, that's it. And that's why I think it's a tough pill to swallow for your average white suburban church. It's a lot to swallow. Because you really are getting into some things that we'd rather not go there. Um, so that, that, that's our story. And so I think New Life, now it's 1996. And so, I, um, you know, the church is, I think church is probably, it, it probably is, I'm not the lead pastor anymore, but it's probably the most, racial rec, rec, most racially diverse church in the United States. Um, it's quite incredible. Uh, able to talk about it very openly. We have an ability to talk about it very openly and wrestle with it, but it's, a, it's a, clearly in the mission. It's it, on every level of the church, it's just, it's, it's, it's very natural. It doesn't, it's nothing, it's nothing weird about it. It's just, we see people, but a lot of work has happened. It didn't just happen because we're in Queen. Because you can have a church that's multiracial if you're in like Manhattan, because people are lots of, you know, you could, doesn't mean you're living as a community. That's very different. Okay. We're living as a community and it flows very naturally and it's a wonderful environment to be in. And I say, you can be from the deep South, a white guy from Kentucky, you'll be fine. Just be yourself. You'll fit in fine. Just be yourself and don't try to be anybody you're not and you'll be all right. So I, I think, you know, some key things just to kind of start out open. These are kind of general, but they're helpful. We started out with a very clear non-negotiable mission. I mean, that's very, we just said it was our mission. You know, we're, we're going to, part of our mission statement is we're going to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. So, I mean, that was right up front from day one. That's significant because you know what? Certain people do not want to come. <laughs> okay. Well, that, like, no, I don't want to do this. I said, okay, well, we love you. And so you're already, you're already leaving American evangelicalism just by having that statement alone. And thus, our location was always difficult because you not, it's not easy to park. It's always going to feel uncomfortable pretty much for everybody. Um, and I think we made four key decisions that turned that vision into a reality. Now, this is just kind of an overall history thing. Uh, oh, I just, I didn't, I didn't write them down. Okay, well. 
Um, I hope I can remember that. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, one was location. I know that. Um, you know, we had an opportunity to move to a cheaper location with parking, and uh, we chose not to move. And we could have actually ended up homeless. We bought a building for six and a half million dollars in 2003 that needed two to three million dollars worth of work, sitting on a quarter of an acre. You know, and no parking. You know, very little parking. Well, it's a choice, isn't it? Um, Another key decision was we weren't going to fill positions of senior leadership uh, with white educated people. We weren't going to do it. We we're going to have power was going to be distributed. Big decision. So that means that means decisions we places certain places certain positions would be vacant, and then people are criticizing you because the church is chaotic. Why isn't why don't you have a crack administrator in here? Well, we're kind of waiting on God for indigenous people to flow up. Like we we hired a, com, a community development corporation. We have a community development corporation, and it took us ten years to find a director, because we knew it had to be someone who's going to live in this community long term. And well, you know, I, yeah, we could have got a Stanford graduate or Columbia graduate or some MBA who focused on social work. A lot of those folks out there, and they could raise money, which would be great. But I knew they weren't going to live here and raise their kids here, long term, and it wasn't a long term future. So you just had to wait, and then you look like you're a control freak because I'm I'm still I'm lead pastor, and I'm and I'm over the community development corporation. Well, I know what I wanted to be. It's just I'm I'm filling up the hole, but then you're misunderstood because oh, you're really power hungry, aren't you, Scazzaro? You know, you know. But it is what it is, and and so you you, you can't explain everything, and you're not we're not doing equal opportunity because it's all about character, but you're you're making some key decisions. Of, you're not going for spe- if you're into speed and growth. You know, it's not going to work. And then, of course, we're working with our people. We're making, we're doing, we're doing discipleship here. Um, and I remember going to Willow Creek conferences, and you know, you go to these conferences and send out. Jerry, Jerry's in the back room. My wife. You know, we sent out. We started the church. We needed money. We, were, we didn't have any money, so we got a grant if we would send out. We would do. We would do a Rick Warren's strategy of send out letters, ten thousand letters to the community to invite them to church. They would give us ten thousand dollars. So we were broke. Say, we'll take the $10,000. We'll send out the letters. We have 70,000 people on a square block. Half don't even speak English. So they didn't, first of all, they didn't give us 10. They gave us five. We spent all five on stamps. I think, I don't know how many people showed up. Hardly anybody. But I mean, we just, I mean, it just didn't work. And so the stuff we were being exposed to in terms of church planting at the time, there wasn't a lot out there. And so, um, so anyway, we just, you know, we slugged it out. Honey, do you remember the other key decisions? I can't remember what they were. But I, I know one thing. We just, suffering was our middle name, you know. It was, a, it, was a, it was just a, you know, key decision. So now here's, I think, the contribution of EH discipleship. Because um, I think, you know, because that's all here nor there. Um, oh, let, let me just say one other thing about our decision. Uh, the issue of, of reconciliation, I know people that, of both different colors, all different colors, that plant churches in, they'll do reconciliation, but they're going to do it in a middle-class community. And we were very committed to um, class reconciliation. Not, not just we were going to have we were, the gospel is you can have rich people and poor people in the same church, right? That's the early church, one of their great witnesses. And I was like, no, the gospel's big enough that you can have different social classes in a church, not just different colors and cultures and ethnicities. Um, and so uh, location was significant for us. Um, and we could have moved to an easier location and been multiracial, but we would have been middle class. Does that make sense? So these were all very strategic decisions and difficult decisions. 
um, because it's much easier. It's just so much easier to just. It's just. It's so easy just not to do this. It's just really, really easy. So here's our contribution. I think EH and Slapstick really served. The first was, I hope I got it down here. Oh, come on, people. There we are. Okay, sorry. Uh, the first is calling people to a radical desert spirituality with Jesus. Let me say this properly. We are not about reconciliation. We are about Jesus. Reconciliation is a byproduct of that. It's very important. In fact, I, I once gave a lecture. It wasn't really a lecture, lecture. But it was a, a talk at Fuller Seminary. And I didn't really understand I was doing this until the professor told me this. He says, I told him, we were telling a whole New Life Fellowship story, and, and, and uh, there was a lot of Q&A. And the his professor, who specialized in cross-cultural ministry, goes, he goes, you know what the key is to New Life Fellowship? He goes, because you're not about reconciliation. You really are radically about Jesus. And for you, it's just theologically, you can't disconnect the two. But if that reconciliation gets a little bit on top, it becomes idolatry. And you have been able to thread that needle at New Life Fellowship, and so it worked. And it's true. And I think he said it for me well. We drew on monasticism. You understand that what makes EH disciple, how many of you are familiar with Emotionally Head Discipleship course? Just how many of you are familiar with it? Okay, not too many. So we developed an Emotionally Head Discipleship course, but... It has two components to it. One is emotional health. The other is really, we call it contemplative spirituality. It's really monastic spirituality. Monasticism grew out of Africa, North Africa, uh, in the you know, second, third, fourth centuries. So it's African. And in fact, you read church history uh, and historians, they'll tell you European monasticism came out of Africa. And actually, if you read uh, Greg Ogden's book uh, on... Uh, into varsity press, I think it's called. Uh, it's really a fantastic book about the contribution of Africa to European Christianity. It wasn't the other way around. It was Africa north. It wasn't north to south, and uh, it's really important work. Um, but anyway, so if you remember the story of the Desert Fathers, as the empire was becoming more and more Christian, men and women fled to the deserts of Egypt and then later Syria and Palestine to. To, to, to be stripped of the idolatry that was not just in the world, but in the church. And they had to swim to be with God to save the church because there was so much worldliness inside the church. And they were known as desert fathers and mothers. And it was this radical call of, you know, just get ready, detachment from possessions, what people think. And if you've read Sayings of the Desert Fathers, great stuff. You should read Benedict Award, really worth reading. But we began to call people to a radical relationship with Jesus. I mean, we used to say we're leaving the world and we're leaving American Christianity. You used to say it like that. So if you want American Christianity, New Life Fellowship Church is just not for you. In fact, EHD is not for you. Just go to another church. This is not about you being a consumer, having a better life, you know, squeeze Jesus into your, your nice suburban lifestyle and your goals for your kids. That is, if that's what you want, that's American Christianity. We're not doing that. We're doing, we're all going to the desert and fashioning a life with God out of which we are going to serve him in the world. That's a radical vision. And so we began to call people to silence and stillness and Sabbath and daily offices and some of the riches of monasticism we brought into our discipleship. Now, it wasn't, we weren't bringing in spiritual disciplines only, like a little more silence, more Bible study, more Bible memorization, more fasting. Now, this was another level. This was like a rule of life. This was some of the riches that, so I, we, we buried ourselves. I buried myself and you know, not just learning from monastics, but you know, from rule of St. Benedict to Orthodox, you know, monastics. Just what can we take into our evangelical culture, you know, or at least tradition, some of the riches for the sake of mission? And this was number one. 
I mean, some people might get offended at me saying this, but I, I'm going to say it. I, I believe it. It is first about Jesus. And I don't think you can move off that. It, we're about Jesus. He's the center of everything. And uh, we'll die on that hill. So, um, and so out of that, you know, everyone's, everyone is being called to silence and stillness with God, much like you know, Desert Fathers, and, and uh, you know, slowing down your life to be with Jesus. Uh, most people are overactive, uh, slowing it down so that I've got a being with God to sustain my doing for God, regardless of your color of your skin or what your profession is or role. This is it. Uh, but what is that going to mean? How are you going to do that? You know, and, and so the core of the EH discipleship is being with Jesus, silence, solitude, loving union, listening to him, practicing his presence, firsthand spirituality. Most people are living a secondhand spirituality. They're living off other people's spirituality. Say, so, no, we don't do that in New Life Fellowship Church. In fact, we're not going to carry you spiritually. We're going to equip you to have your own relationship with Jesus. Yeah, we're going to teach you. We're going to have a great worship team. You're not going to live off this worship team. We purposely, I mean, I, I shouldn't say purposely. I mean, yeah, kind of purposely. We didn't put our energy into having incredible productions on Sundays. We just didn't, because you can't have energy for everything. We didn't do it. I mean, I love, we went to church in Nashville this past week, and we went to a church that was impressive. It was amazing, actually. You know, the front door was amazing. Music, gosh, the music, you know. And I admire it. I, I think it's wonderful. I don't know how much energy they have left over for the rest of it, but we just chose not to go that direction. We said, we are going to invest ourselves in, in discipleship and formation. And, and uh, But this, and so, do you understand, I don't care what color skin you are, as you come into this fellowship, you have to readjust your whole life. We're calling you to create a desert that fits you. Well, that's a big thing. That, that's pretty big. Um, and who comes in? And I, I think that, um, and developing rhythms for your week and your month and your year. And so the centrality of the daily office became key. I began to experiment. What's an evangelical daily office work will look like? And if you get involved with discipleship courses, you'll be exposed to a, everyone does daily offices. You know, a rhythm twice a day with silence and stillness built into it. So you're, you're, they're kind of getting a new language about even following Jesus. I, I purposely changed the language um, to bring in ancient language. And some people said, <laughs> oh, I had one Southern Baptist friend. He goes, Pete, I love your stuff. I just can't use the language, you know, because we got to change it. And he basically wanted to put all this, you know, our typical devotions. And I changed devotions to daily office, you know, and even using the word monastic already offended half the group, right? But I didn't care. I just, I just knew we, just, we had to do something radically different. So again, creating culture um, and offices and, and just a new language. And, and it was part of the effort towards reconciliation, actually, for me, because we've got to be something highly distinct here because uh, we are embarking on a radical journey together here in the middle of Queens. Uh, and then secondly was utilizing genograms uh, for self-awareness and transformation. Um, now, prior to this, let, let me, let me uh, oh gosh, so that's a genogram. Okay, now you may not know what that is. but So part of my, so we drew from, from monasticism, but we also, what, what I did was I, I was doing a lot of reading on family systems theory, Ed Friedman, some of you may know him. And I was like, man, this, this emotional stuff is huge. And we had had, Jerry and I had, had our own kind of birthing into it in 1996. And I was doing a lot of reading on it. And I, and I was like, and we had been exposed to genograms. And so I said, I got, I got to, dig into this and how to bring this to real, our discipleship <coughs> format. And so I went and got my doctorate in marriage and family, uh, a demon, not a PhD, a demon. Uh, and I really did it in order to, to kind of like dive into that world and apply it to leadership development and discipleship. 
And so I was very, I was from 1996, really, we spent almost 17 to 20 years working on how do we do genograms, not in a therapist's office, but actually as part of discipleship, and to help people look at their family over three to four generations and how it's impacted who they are. And uh, it's part of the, it's a core piece of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Uh, and so you're looking at things like this is, I wish this was Jerry's. It's mine. It's too bad. You know? <laughs> All my dysfunctions up here. But, uh, you know, so for example, here's myself. You know, I was raised in a, here's myself and there's Jerry over there. And we have, my, my clicker's not working here on this screen, but there's my parents and there's my grandparents. But, you know, I come out of an uh, abuse background and um, my mother was abused and we were abused by my father and um, and with a mental illness. So I, I, I had so much stuff before I got saved at 19. But I was so unaware, first 17 years of my Christian life, of how it impacted me. Because I was just, my, my theology was it's under the blood, you know, we're moving on type of thing. But I was very unaware. Uh, and yet it impacted all of my relationships. So it's interesting. I could go to Central America and live there for a year and incarnate, learn Spanish and the food and everything like that. But I didn't know how to incarnate and enter the world of my own wife. You know what I'm saying? I didn't. But I couldn't see the connection of, well, I, I, I can do it in another country to a limited degree. But I, I never thought about all the implications of my family history and how it impacted me as a leader, as a Christ follower. And the implications were massive. So we began to use, like, say, okay, we're all, because what this does, when you start doing a genogram with people, it breaks everybody. Like, everyone falls broken at a genogram because every family is sinful and broken. And we've done genograms with people from all over the world. Rich people, poor people, middle class people, educated, uneducated, you name it. And we've seen a lot. And all we can tell you is we're all the same. I mean, it just looks different in every family. But there's, you know, deep brokenness. Uh, and we carry stuff. And, 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 and so once, you, once we began to lead people to that level of discipleship, uh, it just leveled the playing field because you, you you don't you don't see oh you're you know you're, my identity is not in like your your culture ethnicity it's like we're just all broken before Jesus here and we're doing our work to be free you know as fo- as his followers uh, that was gigantic uh, because you had to be self aware to be exercising leadership around reconciliation so what that began to do is who was at the table giving leadership to this discussion of reconciliation. Because when you talk about the history of slavery in America, or Native Americans in America, now we're dealing with powers and principalities, guys. We're dealing with something really big here. This is not, these are the little demons and there's big demons. We get into slavery in America and the histories. We're, we're dealing with big demons. So we better have our life together and our characters intact to be having this level of discussion in a community. Okay, without blowing it up. But I would have people who are very articulate around the issue, regardless of their ethnicity, but they were very unaware. So I didn't know if they're angry at me because I'm white or they angry at me because I remind them of their father. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if... We, they couldn't tell either. I just know, Pete, I just can't stand you. I said, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know? so I'm saying, so, so, but we all have our, our triggers and stuff. And so we began to realize, I began to realize, that certain people could not be at the table because they didn't have the maturity to be at the table. That was huge. And so we would have, like, sometimes a race panel, uh, you know, and have open discussions as a, as a church and leadership. But we realized, uh, no, you have to have done some work in your character to be at this table. 
because we're talking about highly complex things. I, I don't just need a sociologist up here who can regurgitate history and all of blah, blah, blah. I need someone who's actually got to walk with Jesus and can do that as well and be articulate. But if you're still working through the fact that you hate all these people who are, you know, Japanese because of Korea, you know, you're probably not quite right to be here yet, you know, and let's work on that. So that was, that was big. The second was valuing brokenness and vulnerability. I, I think that, that, was a, that was a big value switch. Um, I don't think we had that value in quite the same way before. Our value was, I think, giftedness and articulateness and all that. And leadership, which I, I like those things, of course, but uh, that was a big change. And I, I can think of one person in particular who I just, you know, you know I just had to get off that <coughs> track. And it was hard. It was hard. It was just hard. Because, there are, again, we're, it is about character. And it's, we're, not a, we're not a politically correct thing. It's not about political correctness either. You're being sensitive to issues, issues especially of power, but you're not compromising integrity. And it's a very delicate line to walk. Um, and sometimes you have to make difficult decisions of recognizing this person has the maturity to be in leadership, although they sure do have the right ethnicity or gender or whatever, and you realize, I've got to wait on this one. We have to wait on it. And it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art more than a science. But let's put it this way. You're gonna, Jerry's not here, but I mean, I think, no, you're going to suffer. Whoever's leading, you're going to suffer in the process because it is really challenging. Um, but I wouldn't trade, trade it for anything in the world. The thirdly is you're creating a new language and a culture as a new family of Jesus. This was very vital. And I, and I, I emotionally held discipleship gave us the new language. Um, so it wasn't just monastic language, Desert Fathers, um, contemplative spirituality, rule of life, Sabbath. Uh, it began to be, uh, you know, deep change, and this discipleship course articulates the language. But we created, it was in its formative stages for many years, what we call today the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Course, Part 1 and 2. And, um, you know, it's a centralized, high-quality course, uh, trained table leaders, trained point leader. But... It, we, we began very intentionally to say, we're going we're gonna to install a course in the church that everyone goes through that is our culture, and then we as a leadership are going to reinforce it. Now, our mission statement never changed. We're going to you know, reach lost people. We're going to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. But this course, this is our culture. And then we as a leadership, of course, enforce it. Elder board, church staff down, key leaderships who are you know, in the marketplace. Uh, but everyone went through that course. And then that was our language. And uh, so the spirituality course, which is here, uh, many of you have met this emotionally spirituality course and some of the themes like Sabbath, grief and loss. So even for example, I, I, I guess I'll talk about grief and loss in a second, but um, uh, yeah, so, so there was a, now a language. And then, and then this, probably most importantly, this, and it comes in a relationships course, we had a way we did relationships. Now this was transcended culture um, and that, we are, what does it mean to be the new family of Jesus? Now, in our context, I think it was probably was an advantage we had folks from all over the world. We weren't just African-Americans and whites. We had, you know, we had 75 countries. We had so many nuances. Uh, although those, but everyone, immigrants, were high immigrant church, had to own the fact that this is our wound in America, the racial wound. So we used to educate, like Chinese people come from China. And it's like, what do I care? I said, no, you care because you're in America now and... Our wound is now yours. You're part of our church, and so you, you have to learn about it because immigrants didn't want to learn about it. And, uh, and anyway, yeah, so, um, so these skills uh, were created over quite a, decades, but it was a language that we began to use to be able to talk to each other 
um, that enable us to have hard conversations and function as a community. And so everything from even from clarifying expectations to stop mind dreaming to genogram to how do we listen, how do we speak, and Drew might give you an example of that later. We do clean fighting. There's a lot of conflicts, obviously. Um, only the conflicts now are gonna can easily become racially charged. But what that did, it it, it gave the I think it just it, again it leveled the playing ground of brokenness of community. But we're a new we say we're we're the new family of Jesus. We, we are the new family of Jesus. You'll hear that a lot. We are the new family of Jesus, and we do things differently here. And um, that, so it wasn't just doing the course. It wasn't about a course. It was about a life and a culture. Uh, and you have to understand, like, you were, if you were here last session we did, you're reinforcing that culture at every moment. Every moment. And there's no passes. Nobody gets a pass. Like, in other words, if there's an elephant in the room, regardless of the color of your skin, we're coming after you. In a good way. We're coming after you. We're going to talk to you about it. Because we're not going to tolerate your... Every culture is broken and sinful, we're not, you know, you, and we're not going to have a new family of Jesus. These are discipleship moments. Um, and so we're moving everyone over there to brokenness, to wholeness in their, in their relationship with Jesus. But the, just, you understand, like, that when you have discipleship, we're discipling people in their defensiveness. Like, there's a DM being defensive is not, doesn't belong in the family of Jesus. Being, being low self-aware. You know, isolated, blaming, angry, fearful, self-absorbed, addiction, dishonest. I mean, this stuff just doesn't belong here. So we are going to disciple you to move into wholeness relationships. And um, <coughs> I got to tell you a story. Am I, let me see, I don't know what that story is. I'm, I'm going to jump to it for a second. Hold on a second. So, so I'm going to give an example. So I'm going to get to probably grief and loss. So I had this actually happened. I had an African-American friend of mine from Harlem and, and you know, in the church um, many years. And he was really came to be really just ticked off about this white guy uh, because I forget the conversation they were having and he was trying to explain something to this white guy. And he just said, this racist, blankety blank, you know, and, and, um, and I knew the white guy. And I said, listen, I said, do you understand? His, he's married to a white woman. Okay. She's lonely. You want him to feel your pain. He doesn't feel his own pain. He doesn't feel anything. And he can't even connect with his wife on an emotional level, let alone connect with you as an African-American being trailed by security every time you go into a store. And you're asking him to enter your world. He can't enter his wife's world. So his discipleship is so shallow that, that for him to bridge barriers, it, it, he, he's got so much other work to do before he can even do that one. And so he just had to understand where this guy was coming from. It wasn't just he was a racist, which is partially the issue. It's much bigger than that. He's just a shallow evangelical. And he doesn't know how. He, he, so he can't enter your grief and loss and what it's like to enter suffering. He, just, he doesn't have the capability of doing it. And uh, his discipleship's not touched it, even though he knows the Bible inside out. And so you're able to have discussions like that. So again, there's the course. And uh, you guys want to pick up that leader's kit. You want to experiment with the course. So then lastly, the third, another thing that was a key thing for us was embracing grief and loss uh, to enlarge our soul. That was a really big theology. Um, again, it's all over the Bible. It's in Lamentations. And, but that was gigantic um, because whether it's immigration, racism, Native Americans, uh, grief and loss is a central theme of the Bible. It's a central theme of life. And it sure isn't part of American, suburban, bigger, better, faster culture. It wasn't I didn't grow up in it as a good evangelical, you know? And so that was transformative.
for everyone because now the ability to enter people's pains. And whether it's coming from Bhutan, as one family in our church that was fleeing religious persecution, but what's it like to have to come to the United States from another country? That's devastating. It's talk about a loss, you know? And, and uh, so that was, that was big. Um, and uh, I think EH discipleship really brought that into the culture and became normative discipleship. And then finally, prioritizing incarnational presence and love. That, that loving people was the criteria for maturity. That was, that was a, that was, that's a big theme of EH discipleship. Uh, became a big theme for us post as EH discipleship came into the core that, that you want to know maturity, it's your ability to enter people's worlds and be present. And that really comes out of Martin Buber, I thou, uh, versus I its. And if you know the story of, of Buber, you know, he was into, Martin Buber's history was he was really into, he was a Hasidic into visions and revelations. In 1916, at the, 1915, when the war broke out in Germany, First World War, a young German kid came to him to talk to him. But he was so, he'd just come out of all this revelation with God. And he wasn't present to this young kid who was going to be a soldier. And he finds out later the kid killed himself. And it, it changed his whole life because he realized his religion was worthless because he didn't see this kid. He didn't really listen to him. And that's when he went into his whole journey the rest of his life into we treat people as it's versus real spirituality sees a thou, is present. And I would say that switch became part of EH discipleship, transformed reconciliation as well in our church because we had a new value that started from, I think, our leadership down of being present. And see, when you start doing that across races and cultures, it's just, it's just a very powerful. And I, I, think it made a, I think it made a huge difference. You know, sacred, sac- you know, Buber talks about when two people see each other as thou's, it becomes sacred space. God's glory comes in. You can't quite define it, but it's like God's there. And I think we experienced that at our church. We had to, I had to learn to love. I wasn't good at loving people. You know, I didn't love Jerry well. I didn't love anybody else. But I think God's glory came as we were getting better at seeing people regardless of their ethnicity, color, race, or class. Um, and so there's kind of our four essentials of EH to discipleship, slowing down to be with Jesus, going back to go forward, learning skills to love like Jesus, and then practicing Sabbath rhythms that we're headed for an eternal Sabbath rest. But we practice tasting eternity every week. We stop and rest and delight in God, and we're, we're tasting Sabbath that we're headed for eternally with him. And... Um, so these became essentials, and they, the, the EH discipleship course put it in the culture, and then as we did reconciliation, it made a, a huge difference. So um, I, I should say this. I'm sorry if I didn't say it. I, I made a lot. I, I mean, we made a million mistakes. I hope you hear that. <laughs> a million. And, uh, you know, that's me, you know. And so, uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, but through mistakes, I, I think we, we've grown, a, you know, quite a bit. And I, I would, it's been the greatest privilege of my life to be uh, now I was 26 years lead pastor. Now I'm, I'm on staff of the church. And I primarily focus on giving emotionally the discipleship way to the church, but I'm still part of the community. But I, it's been such a gift. I, I, I see the glory of God in people from all over the world, and I, I just I, I, I feel so privileged to have had this opportunity to, to be a pastor in a place like uh, New, New York City, I, I just, and the multiracial, multicultural dynamic. I would be a much poorer person as a result, and emotional discipleship would not exist. It just would not exist uh, without it. I, I often attribute the African-American suffering of the, of the church history in America. I feel like we received the, the gift of that as a church. And EHD received a gift of that over the years and decades. And I feel like it just permeates the course in particular and it just oozes out. 
um, to the rest of the world. And actually, when the course, this is like 20, 25 countries, you know, our stuff, and people say, why is it I don't feel like I have to translate EH discipleship to our culture? And I said, because it comes out of suffering. EH discipleship came out of a suffering environment. And that's why every country can relate to that. It's not a kind of your typical white suburban thing that's coming out there. And uh, I, I would often consider that most white suburban environments, it's more of a difficult challenge culturally because it's so much, it's kind of raw and it's kind of like in your face. And so I, people love it, but it's just initially like, oh, like this is a lot to take in, you know. So, okay, let me stop there. And uh, gee, let's take a few questions. And, and Drew, because well, Drew, you've been involved in this. Drew, Drew's, so Drew was on our staff. Jerry, yeah? I know, I'm going to ask Drew right now. So Drew was on our staff, and then he's been, tell him what you do, and, and what, because Drew's planting multiracial churches. Yeah, I, uh, so I was on staff with Pete starting in 2001. I started as an intern, and for 10 years, uh, 10 years later, um, I had become a senior associate pastor, and then I left and was blessed to go ahead and start what's become a family of churches since 2012 called Hope Church NYC, with, with many of the similar values that um, I learned at New Life. I feel like I'm a spiritual son of Pete and Jerry, and um, I have learned so much from them. And gosh, it was—it's actually quite emotional for me to hear Pete teach on this because I—I I lived it. I mean, I was this Korean American immigrant kid from Los Angeles who had moved to New York. 9/11 happens when right when I had moved, and I, I walk into this incredibly like. I, you know, I think most of the time people see Pete and Jerry and they, they see kind of the emotionally healthy stuff. And I think most people, when they're, they're kind of stunned, what I've noticed is when people come and visit Queens, have any of you actually been to New Life Fellowship before? Anyone? No? I, I think people, yeah, you guys have. People get stunned by the context because it's in the middle of a largely black and brown and yellow context, like the they're the minority, like yeah, these yeah. they're like the only white people around, um, and and the, this movement of emotional healthy discipleship has really been birthed out of this international community, and um, and the reason why I get emotional is because in the last session I talked about how you know culture when we talk about this disciple making culture, this engine of emotionally healthy discipleship. It's both taught and caught. And one of the things we talked about is the courses help teach it, but Pete and Jerry really, like, they really lived it. And one of the words that they often use is the word integrity. And, of course, the same word for integrity, we get the word integer or wholeness from. And um, I, I just remember I was on the senior executive team. There's some stories now that are coming out of, of right now that I'm sharing, and I didn't even clear this with Pete. But whatever. Um, I was invited to the senior leadership team as this young Korean American. And uh, the senior leadership team consisted of myself, Pete, uh, an older Colombian woman, as well as an older African American woman. And um, I was in these meetings, and I was young and I was cocky. And, uh, and I'd been there for 10 years, and there was some conflict within the community. And um, Frankly, I, I just had, you know, you know that, that graph that he showed of brokenness to wholeness? I was on that broken side of like being completely unaware of how, how I was coming across to these women who were older than me, who had lived more life, had gone through far more suffering than I had, as well as Pete, who as the senior leader was absorbing the tension of like all the racial dynamics of the room at this moment. And um, looking back, 
like, and Pete was, he was trying to coach me. And meanwhile, these, uh, both the, the, both women were trying to tell me as lovingly as possible that I had these significant blind spots in my life, but I just could not see it. Part of it was my youthfulness. Part of it was Satan. I'll blame Satan. You know, part of it was, you know, and par- part of it was just my arrogance. And, um, like looking back at that moment though, like the way in which there was a common, the common denominators of how Pete and these two women treated me in this moment of my own arrogance where like I couldn't even see my racial biases and my racial kind of like, I was tuning out some people and like Pete was trying to tell me like, Drew, you're not coming across as a loving human being. And uh, he, he actually was, was telling me, Drew, I think you need to go and you need to have a listening session to really listen to the pain of the experience of what it's like to be around you. I mean, it, and, and looking back at that moment, I could not hear this in the moment, but this was the gift that I was given as this young, at the time I was in my early 30s, as a young 30-something who, you know, used the, I have a lot of black friends. What do you mean? You know, I, I've got, I've got, I grew up in Los Angeles with a lot of Mexican-Americans. You know, like this was my, and, and, and Pete's like, you don't understand. Like, like, you don't understand how you're coming across. And he was inviting me and both of these women were inviting me in such loving ways because there was this cultural engine of radical, like radical following of Jesus and a radical commitment to a new kind of language that transcends, right? That transcends Christian nice or Southern nice or Minnesota nice, wherever you come from, right? Like that transcends all of that, but is part of the Ephesians for loving truthfully and respectfully, like that Pete and Jerry were modeling to because there was that common ground. Um, th- this executive team gave me a gift. And it's only now looking back where I was I, like, I'm so humbled and grateful for these guys for, and I'm grateful for, for Pete for modeling. Cause one of the things that I would, I would say about that culture, you know, we often say you cannot give what you do not possess. And the reason why I'm such a fanboy of emotionally healthy discipleship again is because what I've seen modeled in Pete and Jerry was the willingness to prayerfully absorb the hostility of racism, of racial bias, of the pain and suffering of African-American brothers and sisters, to continue to absorb that and still in a loving posture walk with people, walk with arrogant, ignorant, 30-somethings who think they know it all about what it means to lead a multiracial church when I was absolutely clueless. And, 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 but, I, but again, the engine of it was the common, was the common commitment to this. And I, and I truly believe it was the prayerful disposition where Pete did not cut my head off when he could have easily. This woman, this African-American woman who's been through so much life, she could have easily cut me off written me off and thrown me under the bus, but she did, she lovingly like was so patient with me. And I, and I do think, so, um, sorry, I didn't realize I was going to, all this is coming out in this moment. I didn't, he didn't know that I was going to share this. I don't think, but, but I, but I think this is where the engine of this, this course has been so instrumental towards this foundation of, of racial reconciliation. Now, of course, what I've been caught and what I've been taught now 
of course, this common language, this common radical commitment to Jesus is, is the same way in which we're trying to lead this new kind of church planting kind of movement of starting new churches and empowering people and doing it with great prayerfulness and wisdom and empowerment. I'm learning all about the power dynamic stuff. And Pete's like the first person I call it. I'm like, Pete, like these power dynamics and absorbing some of the hostility and like uh, you know, and I've told this story in the other two. I, I've regularly said to Pete, Pete, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways in which I, I totally did not realize what you were carrying. And also, thank you. Thank you for giving me the gift of being someone who leveraged your power in ways that were healing and built bridges and did not cut, cut people off or cut me off and... Um, even with the hostility that he was absorbing. And I think that's only, though, and I would, I would say, and I'm speaking for you, Pete, it's only because he had this very rich walk with Jesus. That, I mean, and he and Jerry prayerfully were submitting my, my, my personhood before the Lord. And as a result, they did not write me off. And they were holding the personhood of, you know, people from different ethnic backgrounds. And, and so I really... I, I really salute that, and um, and I do think it is this common discipleship culture and engine that allowed for that to happen. Um, sorry if I talk too much about any of that stuff, but that's one very practical outworking that that I can recall. All right, we got time for one or two questions. For the next three minutes, and then we'll close. Yes, sir. In the like corporate setting of your church, um, how would you? What does lament look like? In the corporate setting of your church, what does lament look like? Because um, in the white-led church, we don't lament. Yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to, like, quite get that, you know, in a multi-ethnic setting. Do you spend time to lament in corporate? You know, like, you get a, um, you know, shooting. You get something that happens sure. in the culture, and do you stop? Do you sit? Do you, during the corporate time? Yes, yes. I think appropriately so. 9-11 is a very obvious one. But as you know, in America, we, we limited for a few weeks, then we were off and running again. But um, I think the biggest thing was, I think, we began to create a, a... I began to preach on it. It was very important. Doing series on Job and Psalms. And, you know, I was joking. Had people write, write Psalms. No, honestly, a series on Psalms, all different types of Psalms, and one, one of which is lament. And we asked people one week to write Psalms, send them in. We would do, like, build a service around it. What was it, honey? 90% were laments. Because people live in laments. And we realized we were creating an environment where people could actually feel their own losses. And we realized it's not just urban people who are full of brokenness and loss. It's global. It's everywhere. But you actually create a safe environment. I think that was probably one of the biggest things. I think more of just even the environment, coming, starting from the pulpit, uh, I think was really was really significant. It kind of just permeated. And of course, the course, but it kind of permeated into the culture where when there was a shooting... We, of course, would stop the church and do something public, you know, in the middle of a service. And, but again, lamenting corporately is a bit challenging because, you know, you don't, is it everyone's in court? You know, that's one thing, but usually people are at different stages of mourning <coughs> over different issues. And, you know, if you're a Democrat, Republican, your grief may be different, right? And how you, it's very challenging to kind of walk those things tenderly through a church. One more, yes. How do you deal with, I mean, there are so many different issues that are external that you can speak to in the church. How do you choose how to deal with those issues when they come up? There's so many cultural and yeah, yeah. racial issues that come up. How do you, uh, how do you deal? Again, I, I, I can't claim to be an expert, right, by any means. I think it's very, 
carefully, because obviously we, we transcend political parties. I, I mean, I think we're not left or right. Um, and it's a, it's a, I don't ever want to affiliate, just like our country is never our first loyalty, Jesus is, right? And they're a first Republican or a Democrat. Um, yet there are issues that transcend that, and how you approach it, and especially in our politicized environment, is really difficult. Uh, I'm not a lead pastor right now, Rich is, so I'm not in that position. Um, so I would say right now the place is more polar, the country is more polarized than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. Uh, we had polarizing events that were quite difficult to address in my tenure, and I remember sending an email to the elders the night before after, say, you know, we had a protest, we had <coughs> cops. Uh, at the protest, I mean, people protesting over perhaps a shooting. Then what am I going to say as a white person now about a white cop shooting a black guy? I mean, it's just complicated. So I'm like passing my statement up the night before, working it through with a diverse board because I'm aware of the challenge of standing up there. And again, who stands up, color of skin. So carefully and thoughtfully and under authority, I think, is a key issue. Um, I don't think you can do, you can't be a free-floating shooter on this. Uh, or you're going to wreck the church. I don't care what color skin you are. You've got to be very thoughtful and prudent and have yourself some wise people around you. And I was very fortunate to have some great people around me all my years that of different races and cultures that could speak into what I was doing. Uh, and I was pretty careful uh, and thoughtful. I think Rich has done a good job. Rich, Rich is dark-skinned Latino, the guy who's leading the church right now. And I think once or twice he kind of crossed the line or two. You know, And I think... Uh, he, and the elders went, boom, that night called him, you know, and I think Rich has learned. Uh, I don't think he realized the level of power in that, of making a statement uh, of a church our size, but he learned very quickly uh, his the words and the power and the little things. And again, the environment we're in is so difficult right now. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm glad I'm not the lead pastor right now, having to wrestle with some of this stuff on a it happened on a Saturday night, boom, politically. So, can I last thing? Yeah, well, and I'll share with you what I caught from Pete as well as what I taught was he and Jerry just instilled this culture of incarnational listening. Like, Pete has been so um, intentional about learning and trying to listen to another person's world. Like, I can ask Pete. Like, Pete, what are you reading about the Korean American history? Like, like, he, like he has, both he and Jerry are so intentional about wanting to enter into people's world. And again, this is a skill that's part of that, that curriculum. And I think that skill um, and that posture naturally lends towards a, a way of communicating that is very sympathetic to so many of the different people in a context, if that makes sense. And I, and I think that's a real sacrificial kind of posture of leadership that, that I caught from my time at New Life. I want to say thank you very much. It's been great to be with you, everybody. And uh, yeah, please, and, uh, we'll be here a couple of minutes. That message was from Pete Scazzaro from Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Make sure to share this episode with someone who you think might like it and connect with us at discipleship.org.